All right, kids, what is tomorrow? That's right. So what do you want for Christmas? What is it? Airsoft gun. I don't know that that's a wise decision. What else? Xbox, yes. I'm sure that's a lot of conversation about screens with your family. What else? A football, done. Okay. <laughs> I can manage that one. Uh, anything else? PS5, wow. <laughs> a parent is shaking her head no, that is not going to happen. Yeah, so this is a time of year, I don't know about your family or maybe your grandkids or nieces or nephews or your own kids, but our kids are saying repeatedly, why does time move so slow this time of year? And my experience is it's not, it's going very, very fast. But like Brother Mark just said, there's something about this time of year where there's, it's, it's almost enchanted, right? But there, there's a time, this, this time of year, we, we tend to talk a lot about giving, but like Brother Mark just said, it also, if we're not careful, can become a time where we start focusing on getting. And you came by that honest. There's a billion dollars every year poured into this time of year and getting us to think about what we get when it comes to Christmas. And so I think it's great that you're here today as we talk about what really this whole season is about. And it kind of involves camping. How many of y'all like to go camping? Yeah, uh, it's a great thing, family bonding time, all that kind of stuff. Uh, back when we lived in Abilene, Texas, we used to drive back every year and go camping in my brother's camper. Uh, he would drive it up to Lake DeGray and we'd camp. And one time I was, at, I was preaching on a Sunday morning. So Leslie and the kids had already driven down and I flew down later. And when I landed, I heard that as soon as they had set up the camper, um, Joel, who was only three at the time, had been in the camper by himself and shut the door and locked it accidentally. And there was no key. There was no way to get in. And so Curtis, my brother, is trying to talk Joel through how to unlock this kind of complicated latch. And then Joel figured out that we had left all the snacks and candy right there. And Eden, who was 10 at the time, goes, he's never coming out of there. And that's the story of how we had to break a window in my brother's camper. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of camping. Maybe there's uh, fun memories or, or maybe the opposite of fun memories. But here's one thing I know about us. Christians in America do not realize how seriously your spiritual for, forefathers took camping. To this day in Israel, there is a feast, a festival that happens every year. Um, it's called the Festival of Booths which sounds like something Shoney's came up with. But what they do on this week is they go out into the wilderness and they set up tents and they camp. And they camp um, for a very real reason. It's around harvest time. And this may sound silly to you, but you need to know Jesus did this. In John chapter 7, um, when the Jewish festival of tabernacles, same thing as booths, Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. Jesus's brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so, we, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. They're actually kind of mocking Jesus when they say this. And at first Jesus isn't going to go, but then he, he winds up 
showing up a little bit later. He shows up and participates in this thing he would have grown up doing. Every week, as a religious thing, the people of Israel go camping. And the reason they did this was because they believed that God's salvation history, what God had done in their past, was what God was doing in their present too. And so they would go out into the wilderness and they would camp for a week, reminding themselves of what God did when he freed them from slavery and what it was like to live in the wilderness for 40 years. So for a week, you eat and sleep in the wilderness. So do you remember the Exodus story? God delivers the Israelite people from slavery. They'd been in slavery for 400 years. And he, he's not content in this, after he delivers them, he's not content for them just to see him occasionally in like a burning bush kind of moment or up on the Mount Sinai as a, a, a thing of fire. Instead, he tells them while they're in the wilderness, I want you to do this. In Exodus 25, I want you to make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Do you hear the echoes of the Garden of Eden here? Like Brother Lynn said in communion, this is, what, this is who God has always been. This is what God has always wanted. He wants to be with us. I hear a, a, the, the heart of a dad wanting to be with his kids. And so in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, they're sent away from God. But now in the time of Moses, God is trying to get back. He wants to be with them. He has them build a tent called the tabernacle and they build it and it is elaborate. In fact, the book of Exodus, the first two thirds of the book of Exodus reads like the screenplay for the movie Taken. I mean, it's exciting. There's action. There's all kinds of stuff. And then all of a sudden it like slows down and it becomes like Bob Vila wrote the last third because it's just all these instructions on how to build this tabernacle. And they made it with the art, the greatest artist. In fact, the first time in the Bible, that someone is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit is a guy named Bezalel who is an artist or a craftsman. And right in the middle of the, uh, of the tabernacle is this. Now, you, it's the Ark of the Covenant. Obviously, it's not the real one. The real one's in Indiana Jones Warehouse somewhere. But what you see is that those two uh, angels, the wings of the angels, that's a seat. That's called the mercy seat. And they know at this point that you can't make an image of God. You are the image of God. So what they are instructed to do by God is not make an image of him, but make a place for him to sit. That's what this is. It is God's throne. And God says, if you make this, I will come and be with you. Now, do you remember the history of the Ark of the Covenant pre-Indiana Jones and Nazis and all that? Before that... The Ark of the Covenant was God telling the people of Israel, I will be with you. I will live among you. But over and over, Israel's problem, we see, is human beings' problem. They do what Adam and Eve did before. And so there's this time in the book of 1 Samuel where uh, the Israelites have been disobeying. They've rebelled against God, and the worst thing happens. The Ark of the Covenant is taken by this neighboring kind of, what would have been like the North Korea of their day, the Philistines. 
And it's an awesome story in 1 Samuel. You can go back and read it. But the Philistines, they're like, oh, we got their great religious artifact. And so they take it and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And uh, over and over again, their statue of their god, Dagon, falls down. Uh, they, they prop the god back up and it falls down again. And then, and this is true, this is in your Bible. God gives them hemorrhoids. That's right. That's really in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 5. And so eventually they're like, you know, we don't want this. Let's send it back. And so they send the ark back. They get some donkeys. They don't want to mess with it anymore. They see like, this is something, we're bumping into something real here. So they send the ark back. And that's the scene here in 2 Samuel. um, Actually, 2 Samuel chapter 6. No, they send it back. And then David again brought together... So. Uh, 30 years after they send it back. Um, actually, I put the wrong scripture in here. It's second, it's first Samuel uh, six is the first one I want you to see. So I'm just going to tell you the story. It goes back to a home of a guy named Abinadab. That's where the ark shows up and it sits there for 30 years. And finally, King David is like, I want to bring it back to the heart of Israel. And he brings it back with a whole parade of people. And in 30 years later, in 2 Samuel, this is what happens. If you could put that up. In 2 Samuel chapter uh, 6, verse 19. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubims on the ark, which is what you just saw. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Next slide, please. And Ohio was, and Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. So, the ark was resting at Abinadab's house for 30 years. And then when it comes to get relocated, you notice who takes it with him? Abinadab's sons, Ahio and Uzzah. Which means, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this story before, which is part of the point. Uzzah grew up with the radical presence of God right there with him. And so, when the cart began to stumble, Uzzah reaches out. It's just household furniture. He grew up with this thing. And as he goes to touch it, he dies. Because who can touch infinity? Who can overestimate their own importance as if they're going to protect God. And it all happened because he grew up with it. I think it's a jarring story that makes me uncomfortable and probably you too. And part of it is, have you ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? 
I don't know about you, but one of the things about human nature that I see the most acutely in the mirror for me is the more I'm around something, the more I take it for granted. This is, I'm a Buick, a brought up in church kid. And one of the things that happens when you are this is over time, over years, we can come to moments like this and think, oh yeah, God became a baby. How sweet, how sentimental. But this is one place where the Indiana Jones movie can actually help us. God really can't eat our face off. This is the presence of God we're talking about. And over time, if we grow up with it, we begin to take this whole thing for granted. God, the reason Christmas is such a big deal is because God is not like us. And yet he became like us. He's the one who holds all of creation together. He is God and I am man. And there is a vast, infinite gulf between the two. And if we forget that when it comes to Christmas, what we do, we basically put God in a theological dryer and we shrink him. We pare the claws off of the Lion of Judah. But this is not the story the Bible is telling. One of the hardest parts of Christmas to people who have grown up in a world shaped by Christianity is that we forget what it means for the one who spoke creation into existence to become a part of creation. Do you know when they first made the tabernacle? When they first did everything God had told them to do and they prayed and they consecrated the tabernacle, this is what happened in Exodus chapter 40. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter it. He couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In the travels of the Israelite, wherever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not leave until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. In the, in the Gospel of John, the word tabernacle and glory are really, really huge. Because he wants you to see, he wants us to see that when he's telling us about the life of Jesus, what he's actually showing us is something God has been doing from the beginning. That what God is doing in Jesus Christ is new, but it's not entirely new. This is who God has always been. And that's why as he opens up the gospel, as he's going to describe to you all the people Jesus sees, all the things Jesus does, all the stuff Jesus says, all the people Jesus touched, he opens it up with this very, very Christmas verse. The word became flesh, and the word there is actually tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. That smoke, that cloud that made Moses have to leave. That, that presence of God that struck Uzzah down when he touched it. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of both grace and truth. All throughout the book of Exodus. Wherever God led... The Israelites went. God was with them. God was constantly moving with them. Just like in the Garden of Eden, 
when he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That may not sound like anything but just religious language to you. But can I tell you this? I am firmly convinced that is the thing every human heart wants more than anything else. When I was in college, Mike Huckabee was the governor of Arkansas. And at one point, they were remodeling the Capitol. And because of that, they moved Mike Huckabee and his family. Does anybody remember? Yeah, to a mobile home. And the way I, you know, I wasn't paying attention to Arkansas politics. I was in college trying to like get decent grades. But the way it came to me is because it was on all the national news. Like Jay Leno talked about it. The Daily Show talked about it. In fact, at one point, the Daily, or the, um, Jay Leno had Mike Huckabee on and they just kind of razzed each other for 10 minutes about it. And it wasn't just national news. Internally, in the, in the politics of the state, like uh, at one point, one of, the Democratic, uh, one of the Democratic congressmen of Arkansas, uh, he's late to a meeting and it's televised. He's with other Democrats and he's like, I'm so sorry I was late. I got behind the governor's mansion on I-30, which, <laughs> and the, it was, yeah, it was really funny, right? The governor of the great state of Arkansas living in a mobile home. And it was embarrassing. Maybe that's why it was national news. Because we don't like our heads of state living in mobile homes. But God was a mobile home God way before that. And the reason why is not beneath him. It's because it's his very nature. He wanted to be with us. And now John is trying to tell us Jesus is God's full presence living and walking among us. Here's a passage you probably don't hear a lot at Christmas because it's a book in the Bible we don't see a lot. Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets. There's this weird kind of prophecy poetry in Zephaniah 3 where it says, Sing, daughter Zion, Shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Why should we be glad? Because the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. When it says the Lord is with you, it's actually the word, the Lord is in your midst. But literally what it says is God is in your womb. And that's exactly the word that's used in the book of Exodus. And I kid you not, it's the exact phrase the angel Gabriel tells Mary when he's announcing what God is doing now. God is in your womb. This is how God reveals his glory. And it's not how we would have done it if we were God. But then we never were. He reveals his glory through flesh and blood. His power is displayed. The climax of the entire Bible, all of human history turns on a baby in a manger. All the glory of God is made the most clear in a dirty stable. All the heavens can't contain him and yet he fits, he fits neatly in a manger. We like our nativity scenes to look very neat and clean. 
We like Joseph and Mary to look like they just stumbled out of a first century Gap commercial. But the reality is my life doesn't look like that. And your life doesn't look like that. Life isn't always easy. I mean, just this week, we've had people die that we love about. Just yesterday, Brother Buddy Warnock died. May he rest in peace and rise in glory. I don't know about you, but sometimes Christmas seasons are the hardest seasons of all. Because life isn't easy. People pass away. We betray each other. And there's poverty. There's injustice. And the umbrella for all that is sin. We live in a broken, fallen world. And it's not just other people. It's us too. And God came into that and lived among us. And I wouldn't have done it the way he would, the way he did. You wouldn't have. He didn't come to Rome. He didn't step up to Augustus Caesar and say, what's up now? He didn't even go to Jerusalem. He went to Bethlehem. There is nothing in Bethlehem. It's like Lone Oak. There's nothing in Bethlehem. (laughs) I'm sorry if you drove from Lone Oak. But look at what happens. This is what John wants you to see. He wants you to know all those stories, all those promises. He wants you to have in mind the story of Uzzah when you see Jesus interacting with people now. Because now, not because of us slowly improving, but because of who God is, God can be touched. In fact, he insists on it. He he tells Thomas, touch my scars. Let me wash your feet, Peter. Let me take that from you. Let me heal that from you. Unlike Uzzah who couldn't touch God and live, this God who loves us so much came to be with us to be touched. And if anybody had to die for that to happen, he made sure it was him. God with us is not some sentimental hallmark slogan. It is the axis of human history. It has split time. It has transformed and is transforming our world one life at a time. There is an Anglican priest named William Frey. And 30 years ago, as he was just beginning his ministry, he was mentoring a young man named John who was blind. John had not grown up blind. He had... There was an accident that happened when he was 13 years old and he lost his eyesight and he was never going to get it back. And you can imagine as a 13-year-old young man, he was devastated. And by John's own admission, what he did after he lost his eyesight was just go into a season of pity for himself. He didn't leave his room. He wouldn't eat with his family. He wouldn't get out. He felt a lot of depression and self-pity. Until after about six months of just staying in his room, his dad one day opened his room door and said, John, winter's coming. It's time to clean the gutters and it's time to put up the storm, the storm window screens. That's your chore. It's always been your chore. You got to do it. And John was like, Dad, have you forgotten? I'm blind. I can't do that stuff anymore. And his dad said, John... It's always been your chore. Get it done. And he walked out. And John got so mad 
as he was thinking about, how dare my dad do this to me? Doesn't he realize I've got enough going on? And because he was full of so much self-pity, he was like, fine, I'm going to do it. I'm going to show him. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to hurt myself or maybe even kill myself. And then he won't just have a blind son. He'll have a blind dead son. So he struggled to get to the garage and to the ladders. He struggled to get the ladders out to put the ladder where it was supposed to go, to get the screens up there. And he worked all day. But eventually, he got it done. And John told William Frey, the priest, this story because he said it was a turning point in my life. I realized I was capable of more than I thought, even though I had lost my eyesight. But it wasn't for years to come that I discovered the entire time I was doing that, my dad was never further than five feet away. Do you know what Christmas means? Outside of all the Charlie Brown specials, outside of all the presents and the wrapping, it means this. You are never alone. You will never be abandoned. God has acted definitively in Jesus Christ and his message to you is no matter what your situation in life is, you are not an orphan. You, will never been, you have never been abandoned. You are loved by a good, good father and his love from the beginning has been a love that was willing to bleed. You're not alone because God is and has always wanted to be.